Ricardo, thank you for being here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Uh, we've been planning this for almost three months. It feels that way. We ran into each other at the bike shed, kind of bumped in, and I think Mario introduced us, and yeah, yeah. here we are today. Yeah, but it was three months. Uh, Mike over here did a great job on following up and harassing me and making sure I respond. So he, he's, a, he's a great guy. He is. I, I'm pretty lucky to have him. He's uh he can be pretty dogged, particularly when it comes to things like motorcycles. He's uh, well committed to, to to riding in that world. Yeah, and and the fact that you both came in riding, I, I want to talk about your bikes. But uh, was, was that a job requirement for for somebody? Did they no, have to have a bike? In fact, he uh, he told me I better <laughs> ride. He's the one that told me I better ride in today, since we we're coming out here to talk about motorcycles. But when the weather's a little bit more controlled, not as hot, I try to ride in to work about once a week at least. Yeah, um, it's just you know you know how it is you. The day can be really shitty, but you get on the bike at the end of it, and by the time you roll home, it seems like it's been a different day, a different world. It's a different fantastic. day, different world. Yeah. Do you have any issues with, because you were talking about the different models and styles of motorcycles mm -hmm. that you, you've gone through. Do you have any, I, I, this sounds weird, but like wardrobe problems? Like, oh, with, with the Ducati, it's easier to suit up versus, you know what? The, no, no, no I, I, you I don't care. I don't wear a suit when I ride. I don't actually, I ride in... This is about as, uh, this shirt with a collar is about as formal as I get on a motorcycle. Yeah. Um, but normally, I wear whatever I'm going to wear, my riding gear to work. And if I know I'm going to ride, I have some clothes at the office. I change there. I put on a button-down shirt. If I need to wear a suit, I wear a suit. Otherwise, it's slacks and uh, shiny brown shoes or something like that. Whatever's, whatever's necessary. It, yeah, exactly. And I don't, um, I, those days, I'm not, I'm pretty trying to make sure that I don't have anything really formal that I need to be a part of or engage in yeah I, I had a friend of mine gabriel he's also an attorney he uh he, he was riding with those um what are those shoes called they go around your toes and they make you feel like you're you're one with the ground it's like the most oh. natural way to walk or something yeah the vibram five-fingered or five-toed yeah, shoes, five -toed shoes yeah. or something like that i think we all have a pair of those somewhere I, I i don't have that do you do you i do, do you I like do. them I, you know i did i you fell into the trend them. that's crazy yeah he rides with them he like he came here in his bmw i'm like dude what are you doing he goes, no, no, I have to ride, you know. Really? I've been fasting for a week, and, you know, this is the shoes that I'm wearing. I'm like, dude, that's pretty intense. Well, I mean, <laughs> like it's a Vibram sole, so who knows? Maybe that'll... Uh, yeah, yeah, but that, if you that, get in an accident or anything, I mean, no, none of us are planning that, but... Yeah, no, I, I, I don't see myself riding in, in uh, five-fingered or five-toed shoes now. Yeah, and then your, uh, your, your Ducati right now, that's your yeah. first Italian bike, right? It is the first Italian bike I've had. It's obviously the first Ducati, always been a... A dream of mine to own a Ducati, um, and that's I think the, we all have that dream. Yeah, you see them; they're so beautiful. I fell in love with the monsters um, in the late—I guess it came out in the late eighties, maybe the early nineties, right. late eighties. I fell in love with them, and um, but you never pulled the trigger. No, I couldn't afford it at that time. I didn't really have the means, um, and so I watched them from afar. I looked at magazines, saw how incredibly people would customize them. I have one. There was a magazine i saw from europe that had a what looked like a silver version everything was polished out it was beautiful and that became a dream bike for a long time yeah but yeah it, it, it's been on my list man and and i want to say it's a price thing but at the same time i i've, I've paid way more for other bikes well yeah you know, like harleys you know like mike's riding a harley you, you get into a harley i'm convinced the next harley i buy is a cvo because like I'm tired of building bikes. You know, I, Mike, Mike's tried to get me on a Harley more than one time. And so when he bought the one he has, um, 
he, you know, he got it and I thought it's a nice bike. It's, what is it? The Mike, the low rider S. Yeah. And so I saw that stripped down. I thought this is a great bike. I rode it. It rode all right. It rode um, all right. <laughs> but then, then he shows up with his all tricked out. And I'm like, Jesus, man, it already looked nice. No, 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 no. You don't understand. You can't just ride a stock Harley. Like, what do you can't ride a stock Harley? And then I found out, like, what he invested to make it look like what it is today. Yeah. And I'm well, like, never mind. At least 10 grand, yeah. dude. At least. Minimum. And yeah. it, but it, it, it's not even that. It's the issue of scheduling appointments with the dealer, uh, them being available to install stuff, it being done on time, three days here, four days there. You know, somebody has to pick you up. You got an Uber back. Like, I, I've, do, I've done it. I've been riding Harleys for 20-something years. I was a general manager and finance manager for Harley. So... I was always hooked on it, but now I got into an age or to a point where I'm like, fuck this, dude. I'm done. I'm over it. Like, it's just too much work. And now I'm looking at the CVOs, and you're like, okay, well, they're before 40-something thousand. But when you buy a street glider or a bagger, you're paying 30-something, and you're going to put 10 grand, and it's going to be like month. Anyways, that, that's, that's my whole. I, to me, at this point, as a lawyer, middle-aged guy, no, I feel like it's a little too cliche. Sorry, Mike, but it's a little cliche at this point. My wife actually would have a meltdown if I rolled up in a Harley at this point. Really? Yeah, she's not a fan. Yeah. yeah. That's the other thing, yeah, because people are just not fans. No. So you've never owned a Harley? Never, never owned. You mentioned you had a Triumph. Yeah, I, I've had a Triumph. I've had Honda, Buell, um, Buell BMW. Harley, yeah. well, Buell you Buell. know, that's interesting you say that. Yes, it is. It is Harley, and I don't want to say it's anything else because at the time it was. It was, but it still wasn't. Eric Buell was still manufacturing, developing it, putting it together the way he wanted to. Yeah, and even though they sold them at the, at the Harley dealerships because they didn't have their own uh, system to do so, you know, that's as close. Let me, let me rephrase everything I said before. Let me backtrack, yeah. pull myself out of that hole a little but bit. But it was a V-twin, right? It was a V-twin. Yeah. It rattled. It was rubber-mounted. You know, it had that <laughs> boom when it started up. You'd, the whole engine would go whack as it kicked over in a way that, you know, other bikes didn't. So, no, definitely. And people would ask, oh, is that the Harley Sport bike? And you're like, well, no, it's a Buell. And they're like, what's a Buell? This is, oh, the Harley Sport bike. Yeah. So it, it was definitely in that role. And I did at one point, the V-Rod was the oh, Harley. you rocked the V-Rod? I didn't rock it, but that was the V. If I was going to own a, an actual Harley, which the HD on, on it, it would have been a V-Rod. Yeah. But I never Do you pulled remember the, the model, the, the Night Rod Special, or I don't I think it might have been just the standard the first couple two three years it came out. Oh, the, the silver one. Yes, exactly. Yeah, That's yeah. the one that was to me. That was beautiful, and it, it just and and in fact the Ducati I ride now the the Speed the Speed Triple that was a Triumph, um, the X Diavel. There's a certain similarity in that it's low, it's sporty, it's raked out, but it's not completely. Um, stretched out like uh, most people think of cruisers uh, today. Or yeah. Today. Is it forward controls? Or yeah. It's forward controls. Yeah. yeah that's the thing that I, I, I got to try it out, but that's the thing that always like throws me off sometimes. I'm so used to mid controls. You know, until the XDL, I never ridden anything really seriously with, with forward controls. And we joke, we, I go, right, that thing, I had a Beamer also, that thing carves the corners and rides the canyons better than the R9T that I had. Really? It, it's amazing. I don't know what they do in, the in Italy to, yeah. to, to create the geometry <laughs> that way. That just It just eats the road like it's nothing. And, and even at slow speeds, quick maneuvering it in slow speed, it, it eats it all up. It, and it's fat tire. I mean, that thing's giant. It's 280? No. Isn't it? 240 probably. 240? Okay, yeah, then 240. 240. Well, there goes my math. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think after 240... 
Yeah, after 250, you start getting into safety issues where it starts bending yeah. swing arms. Okay. And then when you get into like 280, 300s, like I, I knew this one girl in Santa Cruz, she had like a 280 or 300, and, and she had a chopper. But what happens is the swing arm can't take the turns with, with, the, with the tire. Got it. So then it just starts bending and it snaps. So it's a two. It's got to be a two forty. Well, whatever. Which it is, is humongous. It, it's big when you look at it, from, but it's completely. You know, it's it's rolled out like a sport tire. It's not flat. Yeah. And it holds it holds a line really really well. Surprisingly, yeah. I it, was surprised. It, it's a sexy bike. Thank you. It's I a, like it. It's a sexy bike. Yeah. You know, and I was at um this weekend. I was at down at um Roland Sands. They had uh, the, the Italian. Italian. Yeah. And uh, I think at least when I while I was there for the hour hour and a half I was there it was. I was the only XDFL in the whole place. Now, granted, it seemed to be a more sport bikey kind of place, and I love those bikes; they're beautiful. But it's nice to be the only one yeah. in the entire uh, parking lot. So. Those bikes get pricey too. You get into like forties, fifties. No, no, not not the XDFL. They're in the twenties. No, not an XDFL. Oh, yes. no, no, not XDFL, but the other sports guys. Oh yes, those Ducatis are insane. Yeah, man. they start jumping in price quick, especially when you start getting the models built after a particular like they did. Uh, Ferrari get involved or Lamborghini get involved in the design. Then it starts shooting up in price because the paint job. Went yeah. Another thing about when we met, we met at the bike shed. Yeah. Uh, how, how you're a member, right? I was. You were. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I'm a member, but I canceled. But then it's like there was enough people in my group that continued. So then I was like, I went a month without like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and I get that. But, yeah, yeah, so you're no longer a member. I'm no longer a member. You know, I like it. It's a great spot. I have nothing but good things to, about, uh, to say about it. And the food, the people I've met there, the riding culture, the owners, the whole nine yards. I just didn't give me the value. Or I wasn't putting enough of my life in it to make up the value. I wasn't going enough. My life didn't give me the free time. And some of the member benefits at the time, I heard they got better, really weren't making it worth, uh, you know, I got in early a thousand dollars a year, yeah. you know, and that's not a ton of money for a membership of a club, particularly a club like that. But no, it, the first <laughs> year was, was a mess. Yeah. The first year was a mess. We went through what, three different representatives. There was like a six month gap of nothing, no that's information, right. no updates, no anything. They did switch it up. Morgan and, and Nikki or uh, Kiki, I, I won't get too into it, but they, sure. they, they did spice it up they they have so much going on i mean same thing i've been out i was out of the country for two and a half months i I, you know last year i was out of the country for almost three months and just with my four-year-old and the family and everything else i i don't go out there like i've been i've been there in the last six whatever five months i've probably been there three times yeah mike's still a member and so um i don't take advantage of the member benefits but we you know like i was there for the ride on on saturday and that's where i met another buddy of mine, and um, we went over to it. So it's, a, like I said, it's a great space. It's I, a cool I, spot. I, I love man. it. Uh, I, I like it a lot just because, you know, I've always ridden Harleys, mm-hmm. but people see Harley riders, and, you know, that group of Harley riders is always like, let's drink beers and go to bar. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I just like to ride. I love Harleys, and I like to ride. I, I don't care for that. I can keep up with you guys, you know, but I don't want to do that. I just want to, like, cool – lounge or a cool place for food cool where everybody can meet and and they i think they nailed it with with the setup they did absolutely and that, everybody goes there and that's the thing yes it's not just one type of rider it's not even just bikers there's no. people that don't ride well you know everybody needs to ride 
Everybody should ride. I, I, I don't care what they ride. I, I have this thing where I love motorcycles. I don't care what kind of motorcycle it is. I may not ride a Harley or choose to ride a Harley, but it doesn't mean I don't look at them when I hear them roaring down the street or parked in the parking lot. You know, old Hondas, Suzuki, it doesn't matter. It's just there's something about motorcycles. It, ever exciting. since I was a little kid, it just pulls me in. And um, I, hear, I hear a motorcycle coming down the street. I will stop. Wife and kids thinks it's insane. I'll stop. I'll look. I'll try to figure out what it is. Um, and it's just a, an emotional passion for me. Yeah, I love it. No, and I get that because uh, I see it on my four-year-old now. You know, he wakes up right now. Uh, last week, Papa, yeah, take me on the black bike. Oh, nice. I'm like, what? And he goes, take me on the black. I'll take me on the Harley. I want to I go to school in the Harley. And, he, and he's mad that I won't take him. And I'm like, I can't take him. <laughs> yeah, my wife didn't let me put the kids on the bike until they were about twelve. Then yeah, then she's like, "All right." Maybe. Well, we got the Super Seventy Three, so we ride that through town. But he wants to go on the Harley, on the school, big one, on the big one to school. So to see that Pat, when people, I didn't get it when people were like, when I was a kid, I had that passion. But now I'm seeing a kid with that passion, and I'm like, "Oh, that's that's you had that." Yeah, yeah, you had that. Still do. What's your um? I have this paper with with amazing records. You you have you're you're the oldest of seven. I am. You are now a a public defender for Los Angeles. I'm the public defender. You for are Los the public yeah, defender for. Los Angeles. Gotta correct that. Yeah, the, explain these roles. Sure. Uh, you know, public defenders. We are the uh, court appointed attorneys for people who don't hire, can't hire their own lawyers. And we represent them in all level of criminal case. Anytime a person is facing any level of incarceration, deprivation of their property uh, by incarceration, we, they have the, they're entitled under law, the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, to a lawyer. We are the only lawyers that are guaranteed in the United States Constitution. And so what that means is that, Huge. yeah, it's, it is, that is the driving, it's sort of the driving political force behind us. And what that means is that if you don't have the capacity to hire a lawyer, you shouldn't be disadvantaged in the criminal legal system. And public defenders are those lawyers for those individuals. We're the oldest office. We started in 1914, which is um, almost 50 years before the seminal case uh, that brought forth public defense, as most people understand it today, um, which is Gideon B. Wainwright in early 60s, 63, 64. And so in 1914, here in Los Angeles, a woman by the name of Clara Shortridge Fultz, the first woman lawyer in California. So remember 1914, before women had the right to vote. Wow. Uh, yeah. She became a lawyer. And she has an amazing story. We won't go to mention that. Then we'll get in the weeds with that one. But she became a prosecutor and understood in that time frame, 1914, that people that the government was charging and going after for a criminal offense needed protection from the government. The only way any result could be legitimate or fair is if that person had a competent, capable attorney representing them, regardless right. of their economic capacity. So that's how the F Public Defender's Office was founded. We've been going for nearly uh, 110 years. Next year will be 110 years. And in 2018, I was appointed by the Board of Supervisors as the first well, they didn't appoint me as. It turns out I am the first Latino public defender, that is, to director of that uh, agency in its 110-year, near 110-year history. 
I saw that. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I saw. It. I had one hundred and eight, but yeah, two take, years. Well, we take one hundred and ten, take off yeah. five, so one hundred and five when I started, something like that. that that's amazing. Uh, you, 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 again, your background—you've broken a lot of firsts. First to go to college, yeah, my family, first to yes. seven, yeah. first. Uh, you were in Orange County too, right? Or not, I mean, sorry, San Diego. San Diego. I was in San Diego. That's where I started my practice in in, in nineteen blah, 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 nineteen ninety five, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I was Beep. there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I. I oh, it's wait. <laughs> wait, there you go. That's good. Yeah, that is good. But yeah, cover that up. Um, the past the nineteen hundreds. The nineteen. Yeah, my kids say that. Dad, Dad, you were born in the nineteen hundreds. You know, in 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 the middle late nineteen hundreds. Like, yes, thank you very much. That's yeah. really yeah. thoughtful of you. Thanks for bringing. It, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, thanks for right. telling me. Right. Stan. So but yeah, I started. Sorry, go ahead. So, so you broke you broke a lot of records. Yeah, yeah. Were, not broke records, but you were the first and and many things. First one in the family to ride a motorcycle. I am the first one. Well, that I know of. I mean, yeah. I, no one's told me anyone's ridden it otherwise. And certainly, the first one in my family to ride a motorcycle is part of my life. Like it's it's a part of who I am. Right. It's, it's your identity. Part, that's exactly right. It's part of my identity. Lifestyle. Yeah, I don't know. Lifestyle. You, you change identity is who you are. So I don't know that I can ever stop riding motorcycles. In fact, there was a time when my first son was born, Diego. Um, that for whatever reason, you know, first boy, I didn't really grow up with my dad in my life. And I was very concerned that what if something happened to me, my, my first son would my son wouldn't have a dad. And so I stopped writing, like sat in the garage. And, um, my wife says that, uh, you know, I, she could tell I was unhappy. She was happy that I wasn't writing. She was worried about my safety. You but, had a bike, but you weren't writing. Yeah. I was okay. sitting, in the, sitting in the garage. I just didn't feel comfortable. I was more concerned. I was thinking more about my son as I get on it stressing out and not enjoying the physical act of motorcycling. Like I would a, st- Like a guilt. I don't know. I can't describe it. It was more of a, f- of a fear of something happened to me. Yeah. Um, and it was affecting the way I rode. So I'd still go in the, in the garage and look at it, and I would still look at bikes on the street, and I'd go to bike shops and walk the aisles and Kick look tires. at magazines. Exactly right. But I just wouldn't get on it. And my wife could tell I wasn't happy. I was upset. Not upset openly, but it, there was something missing. And <laughs> you were just yelling at her randomly. Right, like, God, <laughs> I need to ride. And she literally, and then I, I, she just said, okay, fine. You're not as happy as you are when you ride. When things are stressful, you get on the motorcycle, you come back, you're happy. And uh, so she gave me the thumbs up. And I, that's when I went out in 2016 and, and, and bought uh, the BMW. I'd already sold the uh, Triumph at that point. And so I didn't ride probably... Um, probably for about three, four years. I just didn't ride. Maybe, you know, quick jobs, but not seriously make it a part of what yeah. I did every day. Not, yeah, not, not blocking out your calendar. And That's right. Setting something up with the guys. And That's right. Yeah. I, I remember my firstborn, uh, four, he's 14 now. I was working at Glendale. Oh, no, I was working at Van Nuys Harley. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but. I have not. It was there for 47 years. They closed up and moved to Santa Clarita. Anyways, the, the, Three days before my son was born, I had a road glide. This was in like 2009, and I had like one of the first fixed up road glides because people weren't doing anything with the road glides back then. They were they were almost going to discontinue them, and I had one of the first fixed up ones. And anyways, my point is is that my son was going to be born in three days, and I was like, if I have a motorcycle before he's born, I'm going to continue riding motorcycles with the wife because the wife's going to be like, if I sell my motorcycle. And I try to buy one having a kid, that's not going to work. That's the end of the world, yeah. So I was like, there's no way I'm selling my bike, right? And I didn't think I was going to sell my bike. 
Kevin James walks into the dealership, uh, the Kings of Queens, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. mall cop. Okay, so he walks into the dealership. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go to Boston. I got my tour bus. I'm going to take my fat boy and this, that, that. And I go, dude, you need like a bike like this. You know, I'm going to see if I can sell him a bagger. And he looks at my bike. He's like, I'll take this one. And I was like, no, no, that's not for sale. Like my son's going to be born in three days and that's my bike and that's not for sale. You can have anything you want. Long story short, he's there for four hours. The other sales guy, I was in it like 17000 the other sales guy's like, he'll cut you a check for 30 grand right now. I was like, oh, here you go. <laughs> Give him the keys. And I was like, I got to buy a bike. I got to buy a bike within three days. And then I found, interesting enough, I found an attorney who bought an FXDXT, fixed up gunmetal blue, bought it from Glendale, spent huge money on it, and wanted to get rid of it. And I bought that for like a lot cheaper. And so this is the thing about Harley, guys. He does the same thing. You all talk in code. The FXT27G, I mean, literally, the rest of us who are not Harley riders or don't follow these bikes have the no... The old McDonald had a cow. We yeah. have no idea what you are talking about. I He does... Mike does this all the time, and I go, what was it? He goes, oh, Fat Boy. Oh, okay, I know Fat Boy. Oh, I know Road Glide. But the letters... Yeah, the FLHX. Right, then he, starts, then he starts going into the types of cylinders, the, the flat, the pan, the this, the that. I'm like... Yeah, they look nice. We go to a museum where I go look at the bikes. They're gorgeous. The, the, the motors are fantastic. But, but there's different language, too. Because when you get into the BMW guys, they get so technical. They get so technical that I don't understand what the fuck they're saying. You know, because I had my BMW. I had the GSA. And I'll be honest, the GSA was like the first real bike that I owned outside of Harley. Mm -hmm. and And the people that I met were like, Sorry, you're wearing your glasses, but like, you know, hey, oh, nice. you got the BMW, you got to be you get up, uh, you're warming it up. And, you're, and I'm like, dude, well, I don't know what anything you're telling me. And they're talking to me in stats and reports. I'm like, this sucks. Like, you're not in the right. No, well, that is motorcycling, right? But I right? love the fucking BMW. But, that, but that's motorcycling. Motorcycling, you have these incredible cultures within each sort of brand faithful people. You know, you go to, you go to a Ducati shop and half the guys that roll up are like six foot one. 180 pounds and you think how does a guy that's six foot one weigh 180 pounds they're wearing you know duck and flight suits and like you're not racing but they look good in the suits and they're on these bikes and they know everything about racing and they can tell you everything about you know the the, the current statistics of who's in first place and how this person won in 1975 and who the champion was in 1988 yeah, it's in their blood right and they know the power and, and the ratio and this and that and the other about the best sticky tires and you sit there and you stare at them. You go, "Wow!" And the BMW guys, right? That I drove, I rode it from Canada to to the points of Chile, and it took this amount of time. And then we had this, and I that, rode it from other. hell to heaven, you know. Yep. <laughs> and you know, and it was a stairway and a highway. Yeah. And and the you know the baggers are talking about all that stuff. There's all these different groups in it. I know. I love. But them then all. in motorcycling, I like to think like the pure motorcyclists love all of that. Yeah. Like I may not be able to to hang with the the alphabet soup of Harley or the statistical probabilities of BMW, or the riding specific speeds and, and ratio of gears to piston size of the Ducati riders, right? But I love them all. And I'll ride my bike with any one of them at any time without judgment. Without judgment, And yeah. I love that. And, and I will, after the ride, I will stop wherever we're stopping and eat and drink with them and laugh and talk and we can be of different, bullshit poli different political views. They can be conservative to my liberal, you know, 
this culture to my Latino culture, it doesn't matter because for that world, that moment, what we're doing is what gives us passion. We're in love with it. And it's fantastic. And when you find that, you know, you hold on to it. That's what I love about it. I mean, when Mike. You escape I, from everything. Yes. But you also get to see, like when we ride, um, we rarely ever ride with just one type of group of bikes. It's everything. We have Aprilias. You know, we have Hondas. We have Beamers. We have Triumphs. And all different models. It's not like everybody's riding one type of bike. And when it, it's just the ride that matters. And it's the, the hanging out afterwards that matters. I think we have the more thing. The only thing we really all have in common besides the bikes is none of us can ride, find the right riding outfit that, that suits the right, right gloves, the right helmet, the right boots. That's the conversation. Yeah. So it's, it's great. I love it. I, I saw you, you have the intercom system on your helmet. Do you guys both have it? We have different ones. We don't talk. Oh, you guys right. don't talk? No, no, no. So cool. I just, we just started. Really? We just got the whole, oh, dude, it's so fucking cool. It's so cool because. Number one, you're looking at everybody riding, uh-huh. and all you're seeing is helmets, but you're communicating with them, and it's like fucking telepathic. You're like, <laughs> like this is fucking, you know, it's, it's, that's number one. Number two, I, I, I've been able to help people. Mm. Uh, like, you know, when you go to Angela's Crest, I can just see somebody that's in the back taking a turn, or I'll just get behind them to, like, get a shot. And I'll be like, dude, you're on the wrong gear. You're, you're, you're a gear too high. You know, bring down your gear. Boom. And then I can just see them, how they get into it. And I go, oh, there. You see, and you can advise. And then same thing, you huh. know, the regular bathroom or this. And it's so perfect that it does not mess your ride up at all. Doesn't. What about the music? It, you, wait, that's if you decide you have music. But even, man, I play music. I get concerned when I play music in my head and I don't even have music playing. You know, like I'll cut through traffic and I'm not even kidding. I'll just be like, dun, 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 dun. I'll just cut through the fucking traffic. You've got, you've got your own, your own theme own. song? That's concerning. You know, yeah, that's my theme song. But uh, but even if you play music, it has nothing to do with, with your your whole everything. It, it really doesn't. Yeah. It's very smooth. And then I just I just got another thing that I've, I've been kind of promoting because I, I just think it's awesome. But I got the new Cena with the camera. Mm. And the camera... When you hit record, records your ride, but the conversation you're having with your boys, like, look at this. And when you're looking at it, it, it it's recording the whole thing. So it records the whole experience wow. with video and audio. I've thought about the camera for a couple of reasons. Most people, like, if anything happens, at least you have it recorded. But there are times on the ride where I'm like, ah, oh God, I wish I had, I wish I could have recorded that particular curve, or I wish I could have recorded that coming up. You know, like when you come up over a canyon, there'll be oceans right there. Yeah. And there's just something it about the It never captures it the way it's supposed to, but you're right. It's right. better it's than At that. least it's better than stopping. You take out your camera and you're clicking. You try to get behind the bike to get the right. Oh, oh yeah. look what it looks like when I come over the hillside. Yeah. the I, I haven't confirmed this, but this, this uh, camera system, mm. if you don't turn it on, it when you click on it, it'll record up to 60 seconds back. Oh, okay. It'll save the last 60 seconds. So if you go over the hill and, and you see that, you just click and you got a whole minute of recording. Oh, because it's, it's been recording. It. I, okay. guess. <laughs> I, I guess. I guess. I don't. I haven't confirmed that. But that, that's a very, very cool system. I'll have to look into that. System. Um, back to the law. Back to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back we're, to we're, the I'm stuff. Sure everything we're going to bring up from here is going to go back to bikes. Well, I, I already yeah. know that. But <laughs> back to this. Uh, okay, so you guys, you guys are the last defense for anybody that can't afford an attorney basically well well the first offense for the people the who can't afford offense. one 
for the people who can't afford one up front. But, you know, we handle about 85% of all criminal cases in the criminal legal system here in L.A. So it's not just people who at the start of the process can't afford an attorney or don't hire. It's people who may they may hire a private lawyer. They may hire an attorney. And as the process goes on, they run out of money. And they can't afford that lawyer anymore. Yeah, that lawyer doesn't want to like do family courts too, man. Like well, hey, all of them. Criminal courts are, you know, it's it's not cheap to get representation. And For regardless anything. of how good that attorney is, or how you know, if they can't get paid, they got to pay their bills. They've got to eat. So we get a lot of those clients back as well. So these are not people that we would have had at the beginning of the process, but we do get them at, uh, in the middle, sometimes near the end of the process. Now, tough question. Mm. If you want to answer? Uh, the quality of defense versus hiring private or having a public defender, is there an issue or is it, there's no issue? Because some I, people speculate. Sure. I, you know, that's great. I'm glad you asked that question. I was hoping to ask that question. Um, look, it, there's great lawyers in private practice and there's terrible lawyers in private practice and there are great lawyers in public defense and there are probably some terrible lawyers in public defense. I haven't met that many, but I will say this. It's mostly a myth. It is part of the culture of public defense mythology, as I call it, that has been that exists in our society. When you when you go to the movies, a legal movie, right, and, and there's this person who's been charged with a, you know, with a horrible crime, a murder, something terrible, and he's sitting in jail, and you get this young, the star of the movie, the young, attractive actor, walks into the cell and says, "Look." Show me the money. Well, yeah. No. <laughs> you know, what he'll say was, I just graduated from Harvard Law. I don't know anything about what I'm doing. I've never practiced law a day in my life. But I'm going to come and represent you because if I don't do it, you're going to get the public defender. You know, and the, the message that is, is that if you don't have a private lawyer, you're stuck with the public defender and, it's, and you're going to be screwed. Right. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean this when I say what I'm about to say. If my sons were in trouble with the law, God forbid that ever happens. Yeah. I would feel more than comfortable with them being represented by the public defender, a public defender. They are the finest, hardest working, most dedicated, compassionate lawyers I have ever had the pleasure of spending my career with. I have seen lawyers that dedicate their well physical well-being to the representation of their clients. They live and breathe their clients' safety and taking care of them, some to the degree where it adversely impacts their, their own well-being. They are so impassioned. For most of the people that go into public defense, it's not just a career. It's not a job. It's not something that they're looking for a paycheck every two weeks. It is a calling. It is a profession. It defines so much of who we are. You know, I've spent 28 Makes years. Sense. Yeah, it, 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 it's just, and, and it's not just people who are, um, let's say, radicalized or, or um, oh, what's, I can't think of the word, but these are people who are intelligence, go to the best law schools in the country. These are individuals that could work anywhere else. They could work at big firms. They could hang their shingle and make three times as much money. They could do anything they wanted. So many of them are so capable of that, but they choose to. They choose to be public defenders. Now, it is the most noble profession of law. And it may not be for everybody, but for those who engage in it and truly believe in it and have the resilience, the personal resilience to do the work over a long period of time, there is no better lawyer. 
and 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 that's not casting aspersions on private attorneys. That's of a, course not. No, but this that's is making a point on yeah, public defenders. And in fact, I will tell you, most private attorneys, good private attorneys, worth their salt, would say exactly the same thing I am saying here. In fact, I would question a private attorney who would disparage the, the quality of representation a public defender makes. Because I would say that private attorney is doing nothing more than trying to earn a few extra dollars in their pocket by getting the business. I, all the private attorneys I've ever spoken to who are really solid lawyers, who care about the business, who care about the law, who care about what they're doing, will tell you the best lawyers that they've encountered, perhaps other than themselves, are the public defenders that they deal with. And a lot of them were public defenders before, know the quality of training and representation working in L.A. public defender's office gives for them. And then they choose the money. I mean, I, it's they want to do something different. Oh, the they hours. have families. And they want to control their, their life. I get that. You know, They don't want to work for somebody else. I understand that as well. So I, I hope that answers a little bit of the no, question. No, that's, that's a strong answer, dude. Well, I'm very passionate by it. Because the, the first thing that I start thinking of is the first comparison, because i got to compare things. Is sure. I start thinking, well... That's a valid point. Number one, it's a great point what you made. Number two, yeah, what if I get a private attorney? Okay, cool. I paid him. He's going to treat me better. But wait a minute. Somebody else pays him more money. He's going to ditch me. Or he's going to focus. Not ditch me, but like anything else can happen too. And he has other cases that prioritize. But what happens with public defenders when they get too many uh, people? Cases. cases? No, it, it can be troublesome. Let me add, add, touch on one thing first, and I'll circle back to that second part. The first part is, is the money part. Look, we live... We're all in, we live in a, in, in a capitalist society, and we're all raised, regardless of where we come from, that the quality of a product is attached to its cost. That's not, we know that's not always the case, right? Of course. In motorcycles, there are plenty of motorcycles out there that cost an arm and a leg that aren't worth their salt. And some of the best motorcycles out there that will run forever aren't super expensive. True. So, but people presume, because of the structure we live in, and for many other reasons, that the quality of their representation is based on how much money they pay for a lawyer. And when they pay for a lawyer, when you go and you buy something, you expect some sort of return. Sorry. You expect them to treat you a particular way when, they, when, they, uh, when you pay for it. Right. Public defenders. Service. Right. We don't get paid from, from the client. You know, regardless of what happens in the case, we get the same salary. So what the public defender has to do, which is much more complicated, much more difficult, is they have to earn that trust, that respect, by their interaction with the client. It's not assumed with an exchange of, of money. It has to be worked for. So public defenders have to go to court, excuse me, go to jail, be there with their clients directly. It is something to be successful as a public defender that I think takes some of the most time and energy, which is actually engaging the client. But I think transitions perfectly into the second part, the workload. There is no question that being a public defender is a taxing job. There is a lot of work. There are a lot of cases. And they don't stop, right? They keep coming in. So you may have a, regardless of wh how many cases you have, when you get rid of cases, more cases come in, right? That's just the nature of the work. It is a volume job. But the lawyers do a bang-up job regardless. And the challenge we have is public defenders have been historically under-resourced as compared to prosecutors. In, in California, they did a study in 2018 and they found that the space between public defense resourcing and prosecution resourcing is over a billion dollars across the state. Holy shit. A billion dollars. And so when you talk about that, public defenders are under-resourced, right? It's, it's hard to, to, to be questioned in your career. People ask public defenders, when are you going to be a DA? 
when are you going to go out and be a real lawyer? I want a real lawyer. If I had the money, I'd hire a real lawyer. These are things that tax on you. When, you're, when things, negative things happen to your client, you know, whether they get convicted or they get something that you didn't, something happens that you didn't want to have happen, I don't get the result you were trying to fight for. It impacts you. you know? And so these are things that you have to deal with year after year. That's why I talked about resilience. Wow. You have to have resilience. I'm going on my, finishing my 28th year in practice this December, oh. and I've never felt burnout, but I've seen people that, that have, and it's not that I'm special or better than them. I have been lucky enough, fortunate enough, blessed enough to find resilience, to find things that impassion me as much as the job outside of the jobs, whether it's the motorcycle, whether it's jujitsu, whether it's my family, whatever these things are, they give me that love of life and things as much as I love being a public defender. So it is a lot of work. There is a lot of work. We need so much more resourcing across the country, across the state to do our work and fight as hard as we should be fighting or can be fighting against the odds that we face. And we need parity with prosecutors. We need to have the resources that they have. You know, we need to have more secretaries, more paralegals, more social workers, more investigators, so that we can, the lawyers can focus on the legal work and we can have teams of people to help us do the ancillary work that is as important. The second, that, that same report taught us, taught me an incredible lesson about resourcing and this question about work. Prosecutors across the state of California, for the most part, are resourced 60% supportive services, 40% lawyers, which means their lawyers have people to help them, more people to help them do work that they can do to prepare for the case so they can focus on the lawyering. Public defenders are the other way around. 40% support staff, 60% lawyers, which means what? That the lawyers, that the public defenders... Are doing all the work. Right. They're doing they, so they much. Have, they have less resources. That's right. So my goal, my vision, my plan for Los Angeles while I'm here as the public defender is not just to gain resources for the department, not just to gain things, but to gain them intelligently, to flip that number for this office so that we're 60-40 or 70-30, whatever the right ratio should be, so that my lawyers have the support teams that they need so that my teams have enough people with themselves, enough paralegals and social works so they can have the support to do the work they need. We're, we're working from a deficit. We're working from a 110 year deficit that has just grown and grown and grown and grown exponentially, particularly in the nineties. We're a long ways from catching up, but we can't just pretend like we don't need right. to catch up. We have to, you have to acknowledge up. it. Uh, you have we to acknowledge, <coughs> yeah, everybody acknowledges We it. embrace it. And, and I, I read that you also were, were the first attorney to digitalize 180 million files or something? 180 million files, 26 or 32. I always forget the number exactly. Uh, ancient, non really old technology, including cobalt uh, language, into a single client case management system. It is state-of-the-art. It is, in my opinion, the most advanced client case management system in the nation today. We are able to collect data on multiple layers of, about different things to look at what it is that we need, not just resource-wise, but what are we doing right. in the case? What are we producing for the client? What are we contributing? I call them touches. How many times are we touching the client's case or the client's life so that we're moving that case forward to a result that hopefully benefits the individual? How do we quantify that? How do we qualify that? And then how do we show the work we're doing in real human terms? What happens to the person? You know, most of the time we're talking about 
the system and the larger process of cases that come through. How many cases come through the system? How many DUIs? How many attempted homicides? How many of this? How many of that? How much time did the people do on average? Those are all important numbers to have system-wide. Data what, points. What happens to the person? What do resources, good resources, do for the individuals? For the person who's at UCLA and has a history of mental illness and has a mental breakdown and does something for the first time, like maybe they attack a professor, it happens, or a family member, and they find themselves in custody because of this mental breakdown and the condition they have. And it looks like their entire life has come to ruin everything they've worked for up to this time, right? So normally we just look at, okay, that's an assault. Maybe that person goes to treatment. What happens with the right resources, with the right diversion programs, with the right community-based supportive services? We can take that person. We do take that person, put them in these services, and get them back to UCLA. So that a year later, two years later, instead of being recycled into the system right. or being part of the permanent criminal legal machine, they are back on track, hopefully, to whatever productive career they can do. And it's not just the person at UCLA. It's the guy that works at Vons who has no prior record, who has a minimal record, who's working hard and has a relapse or something negative happens in their lives. It's the woman who has two kids. She's a single mom. She's working hard. And maybe gets a DUI after a party with her friends. You know, these are people who are living normal, everyday lives that need second and third and fourth chances. And we give them that, and then we can track and show it. Because that's where the value is to you as a community member, to me as a director, to everyone, to see that we're not just passing people through the system, we're helping them. And in helping them, we're giving them opportunities. We're showing them... There's more than one opportunity in life, and they, they are important. And we're showing that by the value of the resources we get. So you're not just seeing it disappear into a black hole. You get results. That's what our system allows us to do in a way that it's never allowed us to do before. Uh, a few things. One, do you think you'll ever get to a point where you can trace enough data points? Do you think you'll get to a point where you can get enough data points where you could start looking at full uh, files and, 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 you know, looking at cases and you could just be like, oh, this attorney worked on it. Let's see how many times they, like you said, they touched the case. Uh, oh, you, you, this, you only touched the case 10 times. It should have been 15 times if you would have done your due diligence and looked at it the proper way. Do you think you'll be able to get stats at that point? Of course. Look, being data-driven and having what I want to have, which is a paperless system where the lawyers no longer practice with big, fat paper files, but everything's on a laptop, right. and they can do everything from that point. Absolutely, because technology isn't, technology isn't just about being uh, gaining resources, right, or showing the work that we're doing. It's also about forcing us to be externally and internally accountable. It's accountability. Correct. You know, we are, regardless of, of the of the of people's opinion, we are government public defenders off. We're paid by and created by to be supported by the government, right? That's what the Sixth Amendment said, government appointed attorneys. And so there are taxes and tax payers want to know that their taxes are being used appropriately. Right. We want to be able to show that we are a, an incredible value, not just economic value, but a community value. And that requires external uh, accountability and internally, right? Like I said, there are exceptional lawyers, and maybe there are a few uh, that aren't doing everything they could be doing. 
we have a responsibility. My team has a responsibility to look at that and help those people find out, is it a performance issue? Is it something that requires progressive discipline? Is it simply that the person needs a little time out? What do they need? And we can only do that by looking at it. Why didn't they do the things uh, that we thought were necessary for the case? The flip side of that, though, is important to say is that being a public defender doesn't mean there's one way to, to do the job. There are many ways. So when you ask the question... Many approaches. Right. If this lawyer... if Why do we expect this to be done? And if someone doesn't do it, doesn't mean they didn't do a good job. It just means we have to ask, why didn't you do this? And if they have a good reason, then that's a valid point. We move on. It's when the person doesn't have a good reason that we can't just move on. But yes, it can do that. It should do that. And we have to do that. We are responsible... Uh, to the clients that way too. The clients come first, and they have we have to make sure that people are doing what we expect them to do for each case. <clears throat> yeah, that, it, it's it's so complex. My other question is going to be, where where is the limit on people's forgiveness? Because you know you run into cases like I'll, I'll give you a recent one, and and I'm not into this. I'm just I'm just Period. scratching the sh- you know the the you look at the comments and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the, the girls and the Uber driver, the three girls got hit. The guy was on was on murder probation or something like that? Yeah, I, I don't have all the details. I'm not, I can't. Because oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about yeah, that particular incident. And, and I don't want to focus on one incident. Yeah. But those cases of like, oh, yeah, this guy was on parole, you know, for fourth, fifth time being arrested, and this person's been this. You know, what? how do we how do we fix that? Because people do need first, you know, a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. But, like... Where's, where's the limit? And you, can't, you can't fix that, Robert. That's just society. That's the world we live in. But the, what we can do, if we're going to be honest about that question, is stop focusing on just that. Yeah. There will always be the person who's on probation or parole it, who it, reoffends. It and what we do in a society, what our media does, what our television, our radio, our God, you know, the Twitter sphere, is they focus on that. They blow it up and they make it larger yeah. than it is. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the justice stakeholders in Los Angeles got together and we looked for ways to protect the community externally and internally. And we realized we had to find ways to not, the jail was a dangerous place, people close together, commute, getting COVID. And we brought the jail population down from 17,000 at the beginning of COVID to nearly 11,000 as the pandemic was coming to a conclusion. For political reasons, people decided to key in on that and talk about this emergency bail orders, new policies that have, that have emptied the jails. I did air quotes there for whoever's listening. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the problem. This is why people are, there's the guy who, I think the news talked about the guy who had been arrested four times and stole a car, kept stealing cars. Or even the smashing grabs. I'm not saying they're a good thing and we should excuse that or, or let them go. But let's talk about what they really are. They're not the fault of zero bail because what we don't talk about is it's not just the 5,000 people that aren't in county jail or that we got out of county jail. It's the tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people that did not go into cages because we were able to do policies that kept them out of cages. The tens of thousands that didn't reoffend, that didn't go out there and commit crimes, that didn't go out and do this stuff. The, the number of people that we're focusing on is statistically irrelevant. It's statistically irrelevant, but it's sensational. It sells papers. It sell, it, it's, it's clickbait. It really is just clickbait, and it allows people who like to create fear and politic on fear to increase the fear. You know, my lawyers were telling me that there was an uptick 
in gun charges with people with no record, with possession of firearms. And the way they explained it to me is these were citizens like you, like Mike, like me, who don't own guns, but were buying into the fear of I can't be out in the street without a danger to myself and my family. If I don't have a gun, it means guns were flying off the shelf. If I don't have a gun, I can't keep them safe. Well, they're not locking it in a box or putting it in their nightstand drawer. They take them with them because that's where the danger is. It's shopping at the store they're hearing in the news. It's going to the mall. Oh, my gosh, that's a dangerous place. Or the movie theaters, wherever it is. And I'm not saying violence doesn't occur there. I don't want that to be confused, but at the level. And then you have this citizen who gets pulled over for things that we do all the time. And because they're law-abiding citizens, they tell the cop, hey, I've got a gun in my glove box or underneath my seat. And the cop doesn't go, okay, that's great. It's all right, law-abiding. So let me unload that for you. You should keep it in the trunk in a lockbox. Right. No, they arrest them. And this person without a record who thought they were doing something to protect their family is looking at a firearms charge. Now, that, I'm not saying there aren't people that carry them illegal for dangerous reasons or use them for crimes. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we over-focus on the fear and the creating of danger, which then creates reactions in people. We don't focus and we don't tell the story of the tens of thousands that didn't go into custody. We don't tell the story of the young man who got back to UCLA and then graduated law school and now doing well. We tell the story about when he attacked the teacher. Right. We don't tell the story about the mother who went to treatment, got her kids back, and has now been doing well in her job, whatever it is she's doing. We tell the story about the fact she was in the car and got a DUI with two of her kids in the car. We don't tell the story about the dad who you know, who had lost his job but gained, got a job back and is now working at the docks as best he can to support his family and putting his kid through college. We talk about the dad who drank too much, lost his temper, and did something violent. Now, those are not good things that happen, but we've got to tell the story about the success of human beings. If we tell more of the story about the success of human beings, the good things about people, our feelings about them will change. Every person that I've ever represented Every single one of them, no matter how heinous the uh, allegations, has done something kind or good for another person when no one was looking, where they never thought anybody would tell that story. Of course. Of course. That is the thing about people. Everybody is like Now, that. my question to that would be, how do we get that message out? Because you're right. I get it. You're, we're having the conversation. I got to know you. I got to ask you this, and you got to respond. And now I know, well, yeah, he's probably right. They're... One bad thing happens, the news blows it up, clickbait, the end. But how, how, how do we get these success stories? Even the simpler ones, even the, the, the basic simpler ones, you know, the guy, dad lost his temper, maybe had a bad day, they got him out, and now he's running a company and he's running 20 employees and he's doing good for the community. How do we get these stories out there? You know, I, I've asked myself that. This is one way, right? You've asked these questions and your listeners Whoever clicks onto this will hear that, and maybe a handful of them will, will ask the next question and want to know more. No more. So that's one way. We have we have successful graduations. You know, maybe if those were covered more, where the media would come and talk about the successful graduations from, you know, the diversion courts, where people who were down and out and we thought they would never, they never thought they'd have a chance again in their lives, are reuniting with their families, and they'll tell you the story are opening a business for the first time, they'll tell you that story, are going back to work, or going back to school, or doing all the things that so many of us take for granted and do every day. And someone might say, well, that's what we're supposed, we're supposed to reward people for, for 
not doing what the rest of us are, are struggling every day to do? Absolutely. We reward people for making the effort. We don't draw lines and say only those of us who do it well every day get the kudos. Everybody gets the kudos of the tribes because, you know, you know as well as I do, this is not an easy process from birth to, to the end of the day. No, it is a challenge. <laughs> it is hard, and it's meant to be hard. And, and the people that struggle the most, the people that need the most, that end up doing all right, those are the people we celebrate. Those are the people we should be talking about because they are, they are why I do what I do. Uh, I, you, you probably don't have the stats on this, or maybe you do, but how many issues do you think are, are nonviolent? And uh, are we good on time, guys? Yeah, I'm good. No worries. Okay. Uh, how, how many of these issues are, are nonviolent? you know, in, in the L.A. County system, yeah. uh, and, and then mental health, you know, like, I don't know if you can touch base on that, but, yeah. but the mental health, and I, I, that would probably be my biggest question, you know, like, how many of this is, is, is non-lethal or non, you know, uh, what's the correct word? Non-violent. Non-violent. Uh, mental health, and... and Big questions, and uh, any one of them could take a long conversation. <laughs> so I'll, I'll take, I'll probably take bites at them that aren't going to give the full picture of it you know nonviolent violent offenses oftentimes is a misnomer um, because the law itself and the way it describes it doesn't describe the actual what happened right that moment the what happened is extremely important so in the law we have what's called an assault a 245 we call it in california now a 245 can be causing great bodily injury appear to cause great bodily injury it doesn't matter it's an offense Right. But what happens behind it? Was it a fight in a bar? Was it two guys that got drunk and the loser is the is the is the victim and the winner is the is the accused? Right. That's usually that that's a lot of times what would happen. Um, is is it a what is the degree of the violence? So that's what we look at. We try to look at that and and make make decisions based not just on the charge, what people hear the charge is or the initial explanation of the facts, but dig deep into what actually occurred. You know, if, if, if someone, the classic one, you know, that, that is, you know, everybody understands that the person comes home and finds their loved, loving partner in bed with someone else. They go emotionally ballistic, they reach in, they grab a gun, and they shoot them both. And then they, they feel so much remorse, they pick up the phone and they call 911 and they say, I just shot my wife and her lover. I came home and they were in bed, I went and grabbed the gun and I shot them both. You know, that's confessing to murder. But there's a different, there's that, that's voluntary manslaughter under the law. So, so the facts, we understand. I use that example because everybody understands, oh, the crime of passion. Right. You know, he was emotional at that moment. She was emotional at that moment. The, what happened is as, is as important or more important than just saying what the allegation is. The other thing you mentioned is mental illness. It is pervasive in our criminal legal system. It is it has been something that I have encountered my entire profession to one degree or another with my clients and early on didn't really have the personal tools and skills to understand and identify how that impacted the case. We're lucky that we're we exist in a system now that is getting better and better every day where we have new laws that say if you can show and establish that a person acted in a particularly legal way or something that was against the law, because of their mental illness, then we have options. We don't have to just get them another conviction and, and time in jail. 
we can look for programs and other options. But that that is incredibly challenging because the system, the laws are changing faster than the external system has to catch up with the needs. We don't have enough as enough enough programs. We don't have enough community-based supported services in Los Angeles. We don't have enough, as we call them, and we call them just beds where we can place people for treatment instead of jail, instead of them being on the street. We are understanding exponentially better today the impact of mental illness on a person's actions. We just don't have the resources built up yet to address our level of understanding. We've known for a long, long time that kids, the human brain, the the frontal development of reason doesn't really come fully into play until a person is 25 years old, which means the conduct of juveniles is understandable. Anybody who has teenagers understands that. Their frontal lobe is not fully developed. Before we knew this, we had a whole campaign in the media calling young people, teenagers, predators, monsters, super criminals, uh, locking them up for multiple lifetimes before they were 16 or 17 or 18 wow. years old. What, what, what time are we talking about? The 90s, right? And then we begin to understand the science. We knew the science before, we just didn't understand it completely. Then we understand it. Now we have these young people in, that have been incarcerated for 10, 15, 20 years, and we understand that the reasons why for it, but we don't have enough resources to get them out or places to put them or help them reintegrate to society. We don't have enough in society to help the people we now know don't need cages. And we don't have enough places in society and in community to help people we know don't need cages because we spent decades, decades building prisons and creating mass incarceration, locking up people for nothing and throwing, saying we're going to throw 25 years to life, 50 to life saying their, their life had no value and put them in a cage forever instead of understanding that that wasn't the solution. Now that we know that that's not the solution, we, have, we haven't been building the resources on the ground to, to give people uh, the help that they need. We are. We're working on it. But we, again, we have focused our energy. And I say we, I mean society, the funders. We have focused our energy for so long in retribution and punishment and caging that now that we realize we need to be focusing our energy on helping people with real challenges that impact their daily lives, we look over to see what, what foundation we have for that, and it's, and it's minimal. I'm hopeful that in my lifetime it'll become level, and then beyond that it'll continue to grow so that the answer is not just putting a person in a cage because they did something in relation to their mental illness because we don't have a good, safe community bed to put them in. I have so many comments and questions that's what i do raise i I, i'm a public defender i'm the public defender i'm focusing on my office i deal with law enforcement i hope and pray that things keep getting the things get better but it it's i think it's just it's part of the culture it is the warrior us versus them culture um another just topic on the whole thing is uh in the 90s the jails became private (laughs) Right under so, the under the Clintons, it, it went no, private. No, and the rumor, and this is why I'm asking this, and the rumor was that because these prisons were privately owned, they had to have a minimum 
uh, capacity f- to get certain funding from the government. So then you have the issue where they try to keep people in jail for longer, and then you have the issues where they uh, where guards instigate stuff and, and mess around to keep them so they can get their funding. Any of that true? I, you know, I, I, I've heard those stories. I don't know enough about I know there are privatized prisons because the population rose so high. And but the Clinton, the rumor with the, the the conspiracy is this is what the Clintons did during yeah. their term, <laughs> you know, and, and this for, that must have been for is that the rumors that they did that for personal wealth? I, 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 I don't know all. Yeah, I, you I, know. Just, I just knew uh, my understanding is that took place during the Clintons. I don't know what the incentive or was it, but the, the main concern was, uh, I believe it was a Netflix special. Uh, I can't remember. Well, if, the name it, if it's it. on Netflix, it must be true. It must be true, right? Because they yeah. put a lot of resources. But one of the opening statements on that Netflix specials was uh, the United States represents less than 3% of the world's population or 4% of the world's population, yet we have 70% of the people, of all the people in jail in the world, 70% are in the jails in U.S. I don't know the exact numbers. That sounds about right, so I don't, I'm, I'm not going to quote a statistic, but yes. What is true is we have the highest incarcerated population per R per capita in the world. The only countries that are competing with us are like China or Iran, Iraq. We are also the only country, we're the only civilized, and I use that word intentionally, Western country that still has capital punishment. You know, our, the other countries that have it, big China, and yeah, that's, we, we, we are, we are uh, hand in hand with China. Yeah, but there are yeah. 1.5 billion yeah. people. Yeah, well, what I'm saying like, is yeah. we are the only one. Right. And, and the countries that don't have capital punishment in Western society, the countries that don't have our incarceration rate in Western society, um, don't have more crime or more levels of crime or higher violence, right. violent crime. Right. No, so, no, no, yeah, so, exactly. So this, our, our prison industrial complex, as some people might call it, and I think I just did, um, look, whether it's privatized, whether it's not privatized, there's, there is money in it, whether it is in jobs, services, construction, ongoing monitoring and supervision, uh, fixing of facilities, whatever it is, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah, and I believe it. that industry depends on a high clientele. And it is, this is not the Hilton or Sheraton family. No, this is people that need to be placed in cages so that that industry survives at that level. Of Mass incarceration is real in America, has been real in America, and it is the result of a systemic racism in the criminal legal system, a system mm. that intentionally, and I think provocatively, over-polices and over-incarcerates black and brown men in particular. Look at Los Angeles. Black Americans in Los Angeles make up about 7 to 9% of the population. Is that, is that right, Mike? 7 to 9%. Yet they make up 30% of the population in our county jail. 30%. It is not because of some sort of more dangerous or violent community. It is for because of historical practices by how police patrol those communities how we invest money in those communities, how we treat the people in those communities. And science has shown inherent bias, unconscious bias that people have. 
policies, redlining policies, that prohibited black Americans from living in communities that were any nicer. Policies that prohibited black Americans from buying homes and acquiring wealth that way. The number one way in America to acquire wealth and pass it on to your children is homes, buying of homes. That's why the American home purchasing thing is such a fundamental part of our culture. Prohibiting entire people from pro- from buying and having access to that method of wealth. Not terrible. These are th- and this is not just me pontificating because I enjoy the sound of my own voice. These are real historical facts that exist, that have existed, and have been unfortunately responsible for the realities that we find ourselves in today. And so, you know, when we talk about over-incarceration, we talk about um, over-policing, those are all the end symptoms, the results of the laws that other and separate people and prevent them from acquiring middle-class wealth at the levels that other people were permitted to do simply because the laws didn't allow them to do it. And, and, and those points that you make are also talked about and heard about, you know, it's just, again, it's, it's just what the media focuses on. And they're like, oh, but the you know, pr- prisons are privatized and this is, you know, but it's true. Everybody's making money off this. Um, let's end on this question. Sure. Uh, remind me, 28 years? 28 years. What, what good and what have you seen gone bad 28 years what what in the last 28 years what have you seen where because you brought up excellent points the teenagers in the 90s you know now it's like well they're teenagers you know we kind of get that but what what really sticks out for you in the last 28 years that you're like i love this or i'm so happy to see this or i thought i never was going to see this and versus where did we go backwards sure um i think the first thing that stands out for me is three strikes when i started practice three strikes was the norm and so i would hear about these days where lawyers before me would go to trial on on cases and their clients would get the underlying offense time if they got convicted. Three strikes meant that if my client who had had a prior felony and committed a new felony, almost any new felony, could be, if they had committed a prior violent strike felony, they could be looking at 25 years to life, 20 years, double the time of the original offense. So the punishment was exceptionally harsh, really, really harsh and draconian when I started. I never thought that would change. I thought that was just the way the practice would be in California forever. It was embedded, yeah. It was embedded. Well, the pendulum swung the other way, and the laws have changed, and three strikes is no longer the the imperious dragon standing over the criminal legal system it had been. I think that's an incredible change. That's huge. I think incredible changes in the criminal legal system that I, that I didn't think I would see is the cultural national shift about capital punishment. Here in L.A., we're lucky to have a prosecutor who's chosen not to file capital cases. It's not the law in California, but he has chosen not to file those cases. I have tried capital case. I've represented a person facing the death penalty. I never thought in my professional career that I would be able to practice or be in a community or an area where we weren't trying to execute people for killing people. That is changed here in Los Angeles, but it's also a change that's coming, that's sweeping the nation, not at rapid speeds, right. but quickly enough that I am seeing change and I'm hopeful that at before I'm done practicing, that that will be the majority of, of, of what we see, not the minority. I think some things that we have, we have worked backwards on is that um, we have, in focusing on mental illness 
and, and, and substance use disorder and the people in the system who are facing those realities in their lives, and it's important to do so. We have, we have um, not resourced or looked for resources enough for the people who aren't troubled by that as, as severely but still need other help. The people who need, you know, treatment for anger management without it being a severe punishment in their life. The people who need more help with education. The people that need more help with um, child care, parenting classes. People that need help because of their the environment they've lived in that doesn't necessarily mean they need drug treatment or, or substance use disorder, but they need programs that can teach them or help them build those skills so they become productive and helpful members of our communities. When I've, when, over my career, I've sat in court um, many, many times, and I've seen families in court, and I've seen examples of young families that are easily judged by the outside world because the baby's bottle has Coke in it instead of uh, you know, formula or, or milk, or because the kid is little and they're Yum. eating tons and tons of Cheetos instead of something healthy. And, and people are so quick to orange. say, right, and people are quick to say, oh, look at that bad parent or that. No, th- probably that parent wasn't exposed to parenting classes or prenatal care to ensure that those are the kind of things that every member of every community has for free because it makes us a better society. It makes those kids better productive members of our community. And it's just the right thing to do. So those are the things that we haven't done well enough um, and have kind of moved backwards as we focused on one group. And I, I think the other thing is, is that um, while it's changing, the criminal legal system has always leaned on the prosecution, law enforcement, the courts, and outside specialists to, to create answers for what the people who are being pulled into the criminal legal system need. And the criminal legal system is frequently turned away or not listened to those people who, we, who represent them, the public defenders. That's changing and it's, it's not as much of a problem here in Los Angeles, but in other locations, public defenders still, to this day, don't have a voice in that conversation. And how can you create a system that is meant to help the people we represent without making their lawyers the number one voice in trying to understand what, those, what the society, what, those are, what our clients need? It's so complex. You've yeah. opened my eyes to so many new things, and, and I'm sure my listeners are thinking the exact same thing. Or they're thinking, oh, my God, he's got this crazy guy on, on, on the <laughs> podcast. I don't know how he did it. Motorcycle tricked him. Yeah. And uh, one, of the, one of the two Ali or both. Uh-huh. No, right. no, but it, it, it's, it, it's, it's so fucking serious, you know, because I, I'm guilty of, of uh, should I even say that ever? I'm <laughs> it's, on the, it's on digital. But I, I've judged, you know, I've seen people, hey, man, what the fuck are you eating? Or like, oh, my God, they're giving chips or whatever the case is. But you're right. It's 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 just they didn't have the guidance or the education or, you know, a question would be, you know, with all the information that we have nowadays, mm-hmm. why don't people know this? But then again, look at all the information we do have nowadays and look how fucking stupid people are for the most part. Well, you because know? if you go on. Because uh, there's on no guidance. There's no guidance on Instagram and and, and uh, those are distractions. Who has you know I don't know a million four million followers. Who who's who's telling that story? I it's not just guidance. It, guidance is certainly a part of it, but guidance it, it's about appropriate resources within community, taking responsibility. Just a few years back, I learned that in the Tri City area here in L.A., which is like um, Bell and that community. They'd never had a community 
hospital or medical center in that area. Mm. People there had to travel, even further away, had to travel to Long Beach to get any kind of medical treatment. Really? This is, this is, this is 2020 something. And finally, thanks to one of our supervisors, Hilda Solis, and other funders, they opened this center in that community for the first time. I was shocked to learn that I was grateful that they did it, but I was shocked to learn that it took all this time to get it done. When everybody knew that that neighborhood high levels of blood pre- high blood pressure questions, cholesterol, very real medical needs that could that are now being addressed quickly, as opposed to having to go to a, to the emergency room down in Long Beach or at LA Central. So, it, we we've known the problems since before, since I was a little kid. We have just chosen to to not prioritize them. And what I see positive is that more and more people are prioritizing them. More and more of our elected officials are prioritizing them and not just making it part of their electoral rhetoric, which we've all heard forever, I've heard forever, but actually engaging in it once they take office. I feel lucky, I truly feel fortunate that I work for five supervisors um, that, and we live in a county with five supervisors who really mean what they say when they talk about lifting up the community and improving their well-being. And, and that's not always the case. And so that is a good thing here we have in Los Angeles. That's an amazing thing. Uh, we should do this again. Anytime. And, and now that I have this information, I'll even have way more questions. We'll try to do it in a more concise manner. I won't rattle. That's, that's my ADHD. You know, it, it get me talking. Oh, I'm like, you know, my wife says having a conversation with is like walking a dog down the street. I'm like, ooh. Squirrel? That's oh, that, that's flower. I'll that, get to the park. Yeah, but it's gonna take a it's while. It's gonna take a while. That's what my podcast is all about. <laughs> that's exactly what it's about. ADHD one hundred and one. That's right. Thank that's you right. very much. My pleasure. Thank Thanks for having me, Robert.